0: Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. On this week's episode, I have a really great conversation with Adam Michaels and Shannon Harvey of the Los Angeles-based design and editorial studio Inventory, Form, and Content. The couple started Inventory, Form, and Content, or InfoCo for short, in 2017 to focus on graphic design, strategy, and content development, while also continuing Inventory Press, which is their really interesting publishing imprint. Both Adam and Shannon previously were a part of Project Projects, which was one of my very favorite design studios and where Adam was a founding principal. Their work has had a profound impact on me and how I think about design, as you'll hear us talk about in this episode. We also talk about their approach to their work, developing a sort of expanded practice, and how InfoCo is sort of a, a way for them to double down on their own design ethos. I really love this conversation and could have talked to them easily for another hour. As I said, I'm a I'm a fan and it was an honor to to have them on the podcast. Remember, if you're a fan of the podcast and want to help support it, you can become a member for $5 a month or $50 a year. Members get an exclusive monthly newsletter that I like to think of as sort of the director's commentary for the podcast. Each month, I share additional content, episode previews, and short essays and thoughts related to the themes of the podcast. These memberships really help keep scratching the surface going, and I just appreciate all of your support, and hope that you enjoy this really fun conversation with Adam Michaels and Shannon Harvey. I was thinking about this conversation. I was kind of thinking about what I wanted to, to talk to both of you about, and I kind of I realized that I discovered Project Projects when I was a senior in college, and it was 2010, and so essentially, and, and I was kind of blown away. This was right when the SALT identity came out, and I remember seeing that and then going through the archives. I had no idea who who these people were and it was completely different than the type of design that I was taught. I came up through a design program that was a very kind of traditional uh, rooted kind of Bauhaus modernism idea where design was invisible. You're not kind of necessarily bringing your own point of view into this. You're translating someone else's um, ideas and so I saw this and it just completely kind of shook everything that I thought I had just been studying. And I feel like in a lot of ways, I've been kind of carrying that through my career, trying to figure out how to reconcile these two approaches to design that I had kind of been presented with. And so I kind of w- would like to start there a little bit. And And this is such a weird, big question to open with, but I'm I would love to hear kind of how you got both of you kind of got into design and arrived at this kind of different way to approach it than is maybe what's considered you know the traditional or, or standard way of approaching design. Yeah, well,
1: let's see. I mean, going going way back uh, in time to, to start to answer the question. Um, I mean, I, I you know I grew up in a in a household with a lot of books and a lot of records and um, and a general I don't know sort of like trappings of it definitely wasn't the hippie era anymore when I was growing up in the '80s, but a lot of those uh, those kinds of trappings were, were still around. And you know, my early exposure to media was was definitely uh, of this kind of like outside of the mm-hmm. outside of the normative um, kind of way. Um, so you know, so starting you know from that as a child into becoming uh, a kind of uh, a little bit angsty, punk rock uh, teenager uh, back in the, the early 90s, and, and this is in the, the Chicago suburbs, um, that this was occurring. Um, you know, basically, again, like just as I sort of got deeper and deeper into, into media in general, it was, not, um, it was not mainstream media. It was not, um, uh, I wasn't really looking at things like corporate branding and being excited about that as right. a kid, I was excited about. Um, well, especially at that time, it'd be like 300 copies of a seven inch record that someone subscreened screened the covers on a paper towel yeah. uh, in the south side of Chicago, like literally. And, and like that, and you know, that stuff, uh, I mean, I don't know. It's just like my mind was very, uh, I was exposed to very mind expanding sorts of uh, things from a kind of early age. So, so you know, as, as as that kind of ends up like translating into what I've done as an adult, it's it's a very, it's a very direct path in a way. Um, it would have been uh, much stranger to all of a sudden um, get really interested in. Uh, well, I don't know. Yeah, I guess branding wasn't like a word when I was a kid, but to kind of. Uh, right. Go that route. It just, in a way, like didn't even occur to me. And I, you know, and I went to art school in Minneapolis at the, the Minneapolis College of Art and Design, and um, which was a wonderful place to uh, receive an education in design. And it also Minneapolis being a little bit, um, you know, it's in the middle of the country. It's a small city. It's extremely cold in the winter. Uh, it's a great place to get. Deep into various uh, subject matter because you kind of really do just burrow in for uh, about half a year into the indoors, um, and uh, yeah, it was—it definitely wasn't uh, a normative approach to design that that you know that, our, that the faculty was teaching then. Um, it wasn't like the cultural scene in Minneapolis was fantastic. Um, the Walker was always a really strong model um, for cultural practice and the kind of like weirder offshoots that come out of it like weird yet rigorous offshoots of of culture um and i remember even like one of my professors when i was sort of trying to wrap my head around like what is what is good typography that professor just saying like well you should just like look at the walker's calendar really closely every month <laughs> it's you know it's just yeah. that well worked out um so yeah so uh, well I might, let's see i've answered the question sort of
0: I yeah mean, can i can I ask, I have another question, Shana, I want to I ask you also, but I want to, Adam, I, wanna, I have another question that I, that I think is interesting, that you were kind of surrounded by all of this stuff, and you were kind of seeing it. Where did the, where, when did you make a connection that people made this stuff, and that that was something you could do, or that design is what this stuff was called? How did that happen?
1: Um, I mean, in an ambient sense, I mean, like something like the whole earth catalog, seeing that as a kid was pretty great as far as it really telegraphing that it's, it's made by humans. And you know, the hand is very apparent. It has a personality. Um, it's, it's a little bit sloppily put together. So, I mean that from a super early age, I think it's, it's kind of clear that it came from, from human beings and not, uh, from some kind of, you know, corporate monolith somewhere. Um, I think, I mean, well, and, you know, there was all kinds of wonderful things that I learned from the deep involvement in the punk scene in the 90s, but the DIY thing was, um, yeah, it's yeah, really major, and, you know, they're you know, and there's numerous bands or like zines at the time that would say like, oh, you wanna you wanna do a record? Here's how you do it, and, and it would just be you know nothing theoretical at all. It'd be like, here's the address for the pressing plant in Nashville, or you could work with this one in California yeah. if you want. Here's yeah. where we print our covers. Here's uh, the three distributors that you can talk to to then sell your records. So, um, in terms of just like demystification of of processes, I mean, yeah, oh, that's the, interesting. The, the yeah. punk scene was a hugely important thing. So then, you know, many years later when working in New York and doing, I mean, in a way, like one of the the propositions about my moving to New York was whether that kind of spirit could translate into, um, into working into this media center, this hub of the world, um, whether those impulses had a place within, um, a much, uh, a much more, um, what's the succinct way of saying it? Uh, I mean, it's a more corporate landscape, but that's not really the thing. It's sort of just like, it's a very. I guess maybe the thing I'm trying to say is it's a different thing to work on the periphery than than work um, in the center of the universe as Manhattan kind of right. continues right. to be. And so in a way, the proposition was like whether uh, whether those whether you can sort of harness the resources from being in the center of the universe and kind of filter in all of these more like countercultural impulses and. Content and approach and and all that uh, through the apparatus, the, the numerous apparatuses that, uh, that that New York City had to offer, and I think that was like I was pretty skeptical about whether that would work when in when initially making that uh, transition to yeah. New York. But that was like the super happy thing is actually actually it did, in a and <laughs> a funny way that you know Project Projects did take on the life that it did, and then you know and then the publishing stuff we've done uh, through Inventory Press subsequently is. Um, very directly, again, like this, like again, like asking the question of like whether whether those impulses and orientations can survive through um, through a more broadly distributed uh, yeah. through mechanisms of broad distribution. And again, the answer is like, I mean, you might not make a lot of money doing it, but like, yes, you can kind of like put these pretty weird things, uh, weird yet rigorous. That'll be the the theme of, of yeah, today, today for sure. uh, like putting those things out into the world. That that is that that's like totally possible, uh, yeah.
2: Well yeah, I think it's so interesting hearing you recount this, obviously I know this story well, but the idea that you were, were coming from Chicago, it was a big city, and you were coming from this kind of like zine and punk rock place, and then I was growing up in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada, which was much more a place of like nature and, <laughs> Incredible landscape,
3: and I was kind of culture
2: starved as a kid, so I didn't even understand that a place like Chicago with that kind of density and like those that scale of institutions existed. So I think my own design kind of origins were more about like how humanity existed in a landscape, and I was way more interested in kind of architecture
3: mm. and how
2: humans like you know survived in this this broader world. But then it's funny too how we both ended up at the same place, which is the Canadian Centre for Architecture in Montreal, because I was coming from this place of architecture, not necessarily wanting to be an architect, but to research it and study it and embed myself in design. And exhibitions for me were the way to embed Uh myself physically in design. And then the rigor of the CCA was also what really appealed to my, kind of like the the right side of my brain, I think. They're so incredible every level of detail of engaging designers work, you know, exploring themes from unusual directions and going really deep um, on, on topics but in an accessible way.
0: Yeah, that actually is really interesting. So did you, you know, when you were growing up in British Columbia, where did, how, how did architecture become, was that kind of the early interest? Because you studied architecture originally, right?
2: Yeah, definitely. I <laughs> think... Early growing up in British Columbia, I was craving a city, and I think part of studying architecture was just understanding how people live together um, in social, you know, constructs essentially, and I actually studied architecture, but with a focus on urban design, so I was always interested in, it's kind of like the facade relationship of buildings to where people actually exist, and questions Mm -hmm. of public space, and um, shared Values and how we kind of come together around the, this project of uh, life and on this planet. Uh, but I think for me, what's been really interesting is I studied graphic design actually as well, architecture and then graphic oh, design. Oh, okay, I didn't know that. So it was always this question of representation and um, a little bit that like thin visible layer of architecture that everyone has access to that I was most fascinated by. Which is actually kind of parlayed directly into a lot of the signage work that we've been doing because these kind of signage projects are ways for me to work with architecture but bring a kind of graphic design sensibility to actually facilitating the movement of people through
0: space. Yeah, it's interesting. I have, I always hesitate when I, when I hear people kind of talk about their background and trying to draw. Two two clear connections because I know you know they're not ever as clear as it sounds in kind of the retelling. But as I was researching for this, I saw Shannon that you had worked at OMA for a while. And hearing, thinking about that now, and then thinking about that in relationship to something like Inventory Press, there there's a an interesting similarity in OMA's model, and and I don't I'm not as familiar. With like the actual kind of inner workings of that, uh, studio, but making buildings, but also making books and research, and that that actually seems very connected to the way you're running your studio now too. Do you w- would you t- make those connections or kind of talk about how those maybe are an influence? And then I think that then also comes back to like the zines and the just you know, doing all everything yourself. It like suddenly all comes together but from two very opposite ends. You know what I mean? No, absolutely. I think everything's
2: connected. Do, <laughs> do, we, do we talk about small, medium, large, extra large? Is
0: that
1: oh, I don't know. <laughs> I I haven't looked at that in some years actually, but I mean so, yeah,
2: I think research has been fundamental to our practice is really uh, um, something that does in some ways come from OMA specifically. I didn't work there for very long, just okay. to clarify, but it was a, a really um, powerful influence on me actually working within the AMO division in there oh, okay. to think about um, not only what you were making which in that case i was working on exhibitions but also you would make an exhibition then you make a book about what you did for the yeah. exhibition and yeah. then you would work on a fashion show and then you make a book about the website that was connected to the fashion show and then you would put that on display at the show and like these things that kind of are all interconnected as one kind of cohesive work of design is sort of how we think about things we're always interested in working in different media and kind of playing out a design idea across different
1: formats yeah that's true i mean yeah traditionally one of one of the yeah one of our favorite things to work on has been like well actually we just did one in uh uh, in Venice recently, for the the Venice Architecture Biennale, we we worked on uh, the U.S. pavilion there, um, and you know, so we did all the exhibition design and exhibition graphics for the pavilion itself. We designed the website, we designed uh, you know some kind of printed materials, and we um, we designed and published uh, the book uh, for that as well. And and it's kind of yeah, I mean, it is. there is something particularly just, like, as a design task, um, particularly compelling about the idea of, like, you come up with a conceptual framework, you come up with a formal vocabulary, and then you sort of, then you get to, to play out how that, what, how, what that does in very different, um, you know, physical situations out of a book or a website or, or a three-dimensional space. Right. Um, and, yeah, and that, that, I mean, just, like, yeah, again, just, like, thinking through the details of, of how something lives in different places is always super interesting. And, and for that, oh, and actually I remember you, you had mentioned the, the inventory book series. Yeah. Um, so we were kind of, we were very excited for um, for the, the US pavilion that the curators, they actually sort of mentioned to us that, oh, they really loved the inventory books paperback series and like, oh, would we be interested in kind of um, having the catalog for the, the pavilion kind of slot into that same format and that same kind of sensibility and um, which was which was a, a wonderful proposition to, to receive because um, you know that was that was something that I put, you know put a lot into a bunch of years ago and it was and those books were very important projects to me but then they, but they were but they were also kind of grueling so they were something that I sort of did and then put down for a little while so it's nice to be kind of asked to pick to pick it up again in a slightly different way a little bit later on.
0: Oh see, that's interesting because I wanted to talk about, those books next, and kind of especially talking about A.M.O. and the way you would do a an exhibition and a book, etc. And I was thinking about inventory books, and I have, I have all of, or I guess there were, there were three from the original set. I don't have the green one. That's the only one I don't have. Um, but I, I, I'm curious about the trajectory of that project, and if. I might be drawing too much of a connection just because of the using the word inventory uh, repeatedly, but how that's <laughs> that started as a series of trade paperbacks and then became a publishing imprint, and now your studio uses the name inventory, where those things are starting to seem like they're coming together more and also getting a little bit more um, expansive in their uh, ambition. Can you kind of... Talk a little bit about maybe how that came about originally as a book series and how that's kind of grown and kind of reshaped how, how your, your work looks or the way you think about your yeah. work. Yeah, definitely. Um, the Yeah, so the, so Inventory
1: Books was originally, um, yeah, it was a series. As, as you say, it ended up being three books, um, all three of them uh were published by Princeton Architectural Press, and basically at that time, I think maybe when I pitched it, I don't know if it was 2008 or 2009, something like that, but 10, um, I don't know. Anyway, the- so, um, so
0: you actually kind of initiated it? You, you yeah, pitched these exactly. ideas? Yeah, Okay.
1: Um, and, it, you know, I guess at that point I had been, you know, Project Projects had been around for a few years, and it was sort of- Felt stable. <laughs> it sort of felt like something that that existed and, and worked, and it was kind of a good moment to start thinking about branching out into um, mm-hmm. other, you know, more expansive ways of, of practicing design. And you know, and similarly to what I was saying before, in terms of picking up like that whole that whole DIY idea. Yeah. I mean, this was still the early two thousands or late two thousands. So it kind of there were there still were those, you know, threads of like I don't know, which were like both. Promoted and debunked, uh, but the whole designer author uh, uh, discourse, that was sort of that was still in the air to some degree. And I, in a way, maybe a proposition of those books was it was more. Uh, what was it? I think there's was, there was the Benjamin essay uh, "Designer as Producer." I remember oh, that yeah. influential on my thinking back then. And 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 a step further than that, just actually designer. Well, whether it's designer as editor or just, or just very simply like a a, a hybrid design designer editor role, and that sort of being, that I guess at that time I sort of formulated that as a way to kind of work more expansively and work in a way that in which I could sort of be the catalyst of synthesizing form and content and kind of bringing putting a book together in a way that traditional uh, workflows of 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 you know professional. Book publishing will really allow for um, that more that that kind of um, synthesis as being the kind of uh, operating principle um, so yeah and, it, and so at that time I mean I was reading a lot of I was reading a lot of theory reading a lot of history and kind of I was I was young still I sort of uh, you know had uh, all these ideas <laughs> <laughs> I mean it really was a distinct a different era from now for sure and uh, And in a way, those little, it's kind of funny because I'm sure I was thinking about it in a pretty grandiose way, but then, but in an appropriately sort of like, like... Funny way, it was sort of like this grandiose idea was to make these tiny books. Right, uh, right. And,
2: uh, Accessible, affordable, tiny books. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, and I'm sure I, yeah, I'm sure there's all kinds of embarrassing notes from that era about, like, this is the best thing that, like, a, this is what a designer should do. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, all that's been tempered with, with time, but it was like, yeah, a lot was kind of a, a wound up in in that particular series and it also was just like i mean the great thing about working in new york at that time was you know this that book street value they that came out of a long-standing right. um collaborative relationship with the center for urban pedagogy which was still um it was you know the main people doing that then were uh rost and and damon rich and and uh and there was um and you know we did this project street value also with meredith tenhor which was this like comprehensive history of this very small bit of Brooklyn um, Fulton Mall, um, so which I could say more about, but maybe without. If this isn't a five-hour podcast, maybe I won't go into <laughs> those, those details. But but you know, but that book came like basically we did a really interesting project. It actually took was an exhibition that was mm. about Fulton Mall and took place on Fulton Mall. the The format of it was these um, oh,
3: yeah.
1: like posters within the existing street furniture there, um, and we just you know with, from all that research, there was a lot more to say, so it was very natural to do a book project out of it um and from there it's very natural to say if we're going to do a book it should be this very considered very deliberate um unusual framing or like the best possible framing for this material right um, and at the same time we were studio mates with work ac uh, we were involved with their um uh public farm one project which was uh, in the young architect's program series at uh ps1 where they built this working organic farm in the courtyard of ps1 so we were around for that whole process and and it was an interesting process um, so that you know led Got to, it. yeah uh, that book being sort of this this narrative of like how this kind of improbable thing came to be um, and in, in this very integrated text and image kind of kind of flow um, but yeah, just thinking about setting
2: up those situations, bit, it was sound, it's very organic how you describe it, but it is an unusual situation that there's this broad range of material that through a kind of experimental mm-hmm. process, editing in the case of PM1, because it was really like an old street project, um, coming to a book-like conclusion, <laughs> Yeah, which is something that we are still kind of practicing as part of the inventory
3: press ethos. We're kind of not afraid to do something a little bit differently, which one
2: example of which should I talk about a bit. Um, (laughs) We're kind of pushing um, forward with this sort of writing a book, not knowing what the outcome is, um, Mm. but writing a book um, from a kind of unusual perspective. So we hosted for three days, in July. Um, David Reinford at our former offices in Los Angeles, which were the former offices of Richard Neutra. Right. Amazing space um, with this incredible um, 1951 kind of aura to it. Um, we had David come out, and um, there were students from Otis, Art Center, CalArts, as well as a variety of friends and graphic designers in the audience. Um, he basically performed his entire um, Princeton graphic design curriculum over the course of three days. So it was 18 hours of David Reinford speaking,
3: um, <laughs> sharing
2: slideshows. Yeah. There were questions from the audience. There, were, there was quite a bit of engagement um, on site, but it was a very kind of arduous process <laughs> for David.
1: Yeah, his voice was, was somewhat by the time Sunday came around. It sounded painful. He said it didn't hurt, but it, <laughs> it hurt. But we, we did, uh, we, yeah, there was a lot of, uh, in, in LA these days, there's a lot of, uh, you know, kind of uh, expensive juice that can be uh, purchased. So we got the most expensive juice we could <laughs> buy for David, and uh, it, did it, it did the trick. Right. It, yeah. it, it worked. It was worth <laughs> the money. Um, <laughs> And, uh, but the whole thing was, I mean, well, it, it was like sort of, it, there was a endurance test element to it, but it was actually like just super fun. It was kind of like, actually, we just got a note from someone who said it was, what did she do? It was the best
2: three days of her life. It was the best three days of life. Oh, wow. <laughs> Which it was almost the best three days of my life. I mean, it was so fun. There was a. The, um, there was a synthesizer break between all the classes, so yeah. We, so I've been
1: I've been messing around with this this Moog synthesizer lately, and that ended up being the palette cleanser between oh, nice. uh, <laughs> between lectures, which was kind of great because then the next day that uh, a new acquaintance of ours who was helping video um, videotape for document I don't, you don't say videotape anymore, do you? Because uh, there's no tape involved. Yeah, the videographer. I mean, yeah. Videographer. yeah
3: videographer. Anyway,
1: the the videographer he brought like his synthesizer in the next day, and one of our Collaborators oh, okay. brought his analog video synthesizer in, also, which was that totally mind blowing, and none of us had ever seen anything like that before. But it was sort of like this really, um, you know, s- serious yet quirky, but just incredible. You know, eighteen hours of, of really good yeah. graphic design curriculum, um, but then, but punctuated with these like new age synth breaks, and then we and we brought food in. We had a, we got a donut sponsorship. Shout out to Donut Friend and <laughs> Tom Hart, uh and and uh, yeah, it just kind of felt like this anarch, like this anarchic version, yeah. of school, which is kind of what, I don't know, maybe I always dreamed that's what school could be like, and that's kind of like why I went to art school, was was hoping for that uh, that degree of anarchy, and we had a little less anarchy in, over the course of a whole semester maybe than in three very compressed days. but. Um, but it, it, it was really fun. Um, and yeah, so anyway, Shannon was uh, describing how that will eventually become well, uh, a book.
0: And that's that's why this, that's interesting to me for a couple reasons. And I think one, it's a great example of just kind of the increase in ambition of what inventory press can produce. And it actually feels very connected. I hadn't made this connection before until just as you were speaking, in a lot of what the kind of blueprint for counter-education idea of this kind of alternative education model and condensing that down, condensing David's curriculum into three days of doing this kind of marathon thing is like this really exciting idea. And I, I Please don't take this question the wrong way, but why why should that then become a book? Like, why is a book the form that this kind of like magical... Weekend turns into?
1: Well, you know, I don't know. People learn in different ways. I would say that I still actually learn best reading. Um, I sort of, the way that I take information in and, and have information stay with me remains uh, reading a text and sort of spending time closely poring over it and thinking about it. Um, I mean, I value greatly, you know, the oral transmission of knowledge as well, but um, on a memory level, it doesn't work as well for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, That's like my, you know, my subjective uh, way of of handling information, but, uh, but...
2: There's also, we're right now going through this editorial process that is involving a huge number of players, actually. So that is also something that... I think could only happen when you're imagining this as a book, mm-hmm. is that you you have both the book time and the space, and you kind of um, engage with others in the developing of a book that is only going to make it richer than...
1: Oh, you mean in terms of like just the the audience and kind of involving? Yeah, we're
2: bringing in some of the audience, but also that we're involving a number of editors, a number of kind of advisors in the project. It's not something that you can do instantaneously on fly while that performance is being given. Mm -hmm. It's something that takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of correspondence. It takes a lot of kind of exchange. That I think a book kind of timeline
3: format and expectation is
2: kind of a unique container for that coming
0: together. To me, it it even connects to why this project is a podcast in a way, because I thought, a lot, you know, as I was doing this research, and it was similar, it wasn't over the course of three days, it was, you know, two two years of graduate school, but it was all this kind of random collection of things, and I spent a lot of time just thinking about what is the format that coheres this the best, and also reaches the people that I want it to reach and and you know, forty five minute audio conversation seemed like the best way to, to do that. But I still don't know if it actually is the best way, but it's it's been the way that seems like it had the the legs that allowed it to to go on. And so I, I I'm kind of very into to what you're talking about. And again, I don't mean to keep connecting back to other projects, but it's reminding me of the electric information age book that then became an album that was also a performance. And how do you, how do you think about how, do you think about those as separate, separate, like does the format make something different, you know, or is that all one thing is, is David's three week event? Is that a different thing than what the book will be? You know what I, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the thing is like basically, Always having everything be the well, let me, let me see. What's my my broad statement? It's sort of um, to express a given set of content. You've got to figure that there that there's a better way to express. Um, yeah, any content has the has its best home <laughs> in, a, <laughs> right. in a sort of way. And um, and you know, I'm thinking about. I mean, with the Electric Information Age book, it was very apparent that you know a small experimental paperback book is the best possible place to present the content of other small, uh, experimental paperback books. And, and you know, and the, the kind of affordances that a lot of, of like having this montage of montages as you sort of flow through these different books within the space of, of one book and sort of ex- experience multiple, yeah, the sense of multiplicity within the singular. Um, right. and, uh, so, you know, in that case, I would say that's the best possible place for that, material to live. Um, it was, it was, it was almost like a humorous offshoot that we did that record because we were, it was a, you know, a historical, um, nice little piece of information was that with the medium is the massage, which was the centerpiece of our book, that there was an LP of the medium is the massage that also came out, which, which isn't a, you wouldn't call it a great record in (laughs) the history of records, but it's a kind of wonderful historical thing that that exists. um, so that, was um, inspiration for us to have that similar uh, sort of parallel in media. Um, and, but yeah, I mean, thinking about something like Blueprint for Counter Education, I mean, that also, um, I mean, one of the re- so Jeffrey Schnapp and I had been, we came across Blueprint when we had been doing our research for the Electric Information Age book, and there's just a little tiny bit about Blueprint within the earlier paperback book, but, but basically we just thought it was such an interesting thing in and of itself that we knew we wanted to do um, a, a project around it somehow, um, and we'd struggled for a while to go, should is, is an exhibition the best thing to do with this, is a, um, a kind of limited, oh, we just like reprint the posters and put them in a mm-hmm. ziplock back, was like something that came up. it was like a lighter weight way, way of doing it, but then we realized that the, the original... There's really nothing like it in a funny way. Like it's it's such a particular thing, and the format is so right. bound up, like we're unbound <laughs> with uh, with uh, with you know that material um, that we realized you know if we're putting this back out into the world, really just like putting the thing itself back out into the world was was the most uh, was was really important, and then and that is when we ended up spending time with uh, the original editors, Maureen, and Larry, and the mm-hmm. designer Marshall, and uh, and trying to figure out, like, since the original was such a strange, particular, unusual thing, like, how on earth did that come to be? Right. That, and that story kind of forms the basis of the uh, the new book that we added into the expanded reprint. But again, I mean, that's a long way of saying that, um, you know, just thinking over, like, talking about that project. I mean, the best way to the best way to sort of like put that content in front of people again was through that particular, um, you know, reinvigoration of of the, of the thing itself. Right. Um, one important part of the project that maybe we haven't mentioned yet is, is like the aspiration, or the aspiration to do the book also comes from there not really being what, like a graphic design textbook that's just like a good, there's not a good foundational graphic design textbook. So there's a very practical yeah. need for that out in the world. Um, like there's a void to be filled in that case. And when doing publishing, that's definitely, I mean, I wouldn't say like every single thing we've done fills, like, a gaping hole. Yeah, that's not usually the first question. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say. But ideally, in a way, like, the most interesting projects are, because, I mean, in a way, like, I think Blueprint did fill in a gap of, like, like intellectual and graphic design history. Yeah. Um, and there's all kinds of important trajectories to that. So, you know, so I, I think that there, it actually, in our little, you know, within our little world, it actually is kind of important to put that back in front of people. And, and in the same way with... Um, with David's book, again, like we just don't, like it actually is, it would be very useful for there to, like for this to be like something that every, um, you know, starting, someone who's new to graphic design, starting out learning about it has like some of these foundational uh-huh. um, bits of information like that. That's, yeah, that, that's a genuinely useful thing to try to do at least. So.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love, I love the way you, you kind of articulated that. And it's a nice way, I want to talk about kind of the studio now and the, kind of the work you're doing now. And I have a theory about the studio that I would love, especially kind of hearing you talk about your background and kind of your interests and goals that when, when project project split and, and, and you started inventory forming content that do you, do you say Infoco out loud <laughs> or is that just the URL? Yeah, that's a good
1: question. We we weren't sure starting out. And yeah. then it, it is it takes a really long time to say inventory form and content. So yeah, we do we do yeah, when when someone asks us the name of the studio, we do say Infoco. Okay. Right. Kind of like the the quick, like utility company like aspect of, of yeah. the of the short version.
0: Yeah, yeah, I love that. I wasn't sure. I got as I was saying it I got really <laughs> self conscious all of a sudden that, that I was saying it wrong. But my, my thing theory is and it made a lot of sense when you announced the new studio that in so many ways this was it felt to me like a return to the the roots that you were kind of talking about originally in this sort of kind of desire to to really keep the studio small and to really focus on projects where you can kind of span that process from concept to editing to content to design and and kind of embody that that DIY ethos that you know you kind of came up in, and it seemed like a uh, almost like a, a reentrenchment of those like putting our stake in the ground. This is this is the type of work that we're interested in. Does that is this is that at all correct or?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's a very accurate interpretation. And you know, and there was always aspects of that that were part of what ran through project projects right. from start to finish, but. Um, well, I don't know. You could say we were the victims of our success in some way, in that it just kind of became a large, an overly large, and overly cumbersome structure, and and you know, we we kind of just tested the boundaries of scale every year, and you know, maybe added one person a year, and it's very sort of slow, organic kind of growth, um, and testing whether you know something was yeah you know, the right whether it was the mm-hmm. right scale or the right fit or whatever, and then and I think we did just reach a point where it was like oh, this is actually at, at this scale, it, it's not really, it just sort of felt like it wasn't working that well in terms of what you're describing, of in terms of, like, ways of working, basically, right. and ways of um, engaging very closely with with both form and content. Um, I mean, inevitably, when, when a business is larger, you sort of, and, um, and you're sort of in the more, like, managerial position, I mean, you well, yeah, it's just, like, towards the end, it was clear that it would only work if I was kind of... Managing other people doing work, and you know we have all kinds of wonderful people at the studio, but um, It just didn't really allow for the kinds of hands-on approach to work. That is what I like doing basically, so
3: Yeah, I think founding
2: the new studio has actually been really exciting to do in Los Angeles I mean we were always really attracted to the city and started coming out fairly regularly over the past three or four years, I guess, through a variety of projects um, that we were doing that were sometimes a little bit more physical or spatial or took advantage of some of the light and air that um, we have here in LA. But that transition to a new environment has also been really positive for us, I would say. just the the change has generated yeah. a lot of new ideas, but there's very different rhythms in LA that I think we're we're still learning what those rhythms are. But um, so far, they've been really conducive to our own desire to kind of engage deeply with what we're working on and um, a wide variety of ideas. So it's it's been really positive,
1: I would say. Yeah, absolutely. And it's yeah, and it's just nice that. To... Yeah, I think maybe actually in one of your, maybe in your notes that you had sent over, you'd have something about um, sort of client versus non-client yeah. kinds of projects. And and I mean, in one thing in the new, well, I mean, again, maybe this this, this would happen sometimes at the old studio, but now it's just like, it's just a really natural flow between, you know, whether something's, whether it's an idea we came up with, whether it's something that came in right. externally. Um, but, you know, it's almost like client versus non-client doesn't feel it doesn't actually feel like that strong of a distinction in some ways. It's just sort of, you know, different projects have different configurations to them um, and they all have their own. And they, I don't know, they all sort of like flow together in a, in a really natural way. Um, so it's nice that that doesn't feel like, you know, that traditional dichotomy of like your non-client stuff is your interesting stuff, your client stuff right. is, is uh, you know, bread and butter stuff. I mean, it's, it's uh, yeah, it's just a really good flow between all of these these different uh, ways of working with people. Um, and also there's just a lot of, I mean, the nice thing also of having a smaller studio is that when, you know, something comes up and, you know, it, 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 if a project comes up that involves expertise that we don't have in-house, it's really nice and natural to call upon. Right. Um, you know, we have a really nice, like, wide group of, of collaborators uh, across, you know, all imaginable media, really. So if there's something that comes in and... And it's a video project or, you know, whatever it might be, there's sort of people that we can kind of pull into, um, you know, a particular um, configuration for a particular project.
2: Yeah, it's the right person for that project. Right. It's been so nice. It's finding the right collaborator to really bring something to life in the way that it should or the best
1: life. Yeah. And I think it's easier for people to have a little bit more, I mean, including us, for there to be a little more of a, a flow of, of different kinds of working relationships in L.A. than, than it had been in New York towards mm. the end. I mean, especially just because, uh, I mean, our rents in New York became extremely <laughs> expensive for the studio by the end. So the yeah. financial stakes in, in general are, I mean, it's not it's not cheap, cheap here anymore, but it's kind of, it's just a little bit more more viable to have more a little bit more of an open situation. Um, right. Whereas, you know, it had to be pretty, Pretty well regulated in, in New York, with the just with the basic stakes of like monthly
0: survival. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I know, I know what you're talking about there.
2: But that said, like, we're seven people in the studio most days, and it's very busy.
1: Yeah, we're not. Yeah. Very, we'd like to busy. say that we're just sort of out here uh, going to the beach and. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> But yeah, we're, we we st- we've managed to bring our New York uh, work ethic and work pace uh, m-
0: more or less. With yeah,
2: there's just That's- more sunshine in the, in the lunch hour. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Has working on on whether it's books with the press or you know projects where you're kind of involved not just as designers but as like form makers, writers, editors, researchers, when, when you can work across that process, does that change, A, kind of how you think about the work when you're not working, you know, when you are hired just as a, as a designer? And then B, does that change the type of people that come to the studio? Like, do people come to you now for all of that?
1: Well yeah, the latter is easy to answer. I mean yes, I mean it's been it's been we it does feel like the signals that we've put out into the world in terms of the the range of of what our interests are and what how we would like to work the, those signals do it does feel like those signals have been received um, and we we do people do come to us with um, further ranging propositions than um, than just like, oh I, here's a very here's your design brief, please right. Right. Please give me design. <laughs> right, right. Um, um, wait, anyway, so I answered the, the second half, which is the easy half. What was the first half
0: again? Has, has, has working basically across the process, not just in the design process, has that changed kind of how you think about, I, I guess, like what the work is in general? Or, you know, if you are asked to do just the design part of it and I I don't mean to make those so rigid as differences but you know as a designer does the way you approach that differently now that you're also working in editing and researching and publishing and writing
1: yeah I I think um yeah I mean I think as you work in different ways it does it can't help but sort of uh, just like expand mental horizons basically um and, but, but that said, I mean, sometimes it actually is kind of a relief when, when a project is just really straightforward and there is a really defined deliverable. It can actually be kind of nice to be like, oh, that, that seems simple and we can do that without going crazy. Okay. Yeah. Because, <laughs> like I mean, the, thing, the, the, the yeah. things that are... I cannot uh, more...
0: tell you how glad that makes me to hear you say that because I, I've <laughs> thought that myself after on these like working on these big projects. And I said to someone literally yesterday... I kind of just want to design a poster for somebody. Is that yeah. still a thing yeah. I can do? I mean, I,
3: I love stationary projects. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. that out
2: there.
0: <laughs> I mean,
2: just really refining design on a page can be really satisfying.
1: Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, I think like, yeah, it's like, I think if everything we were doing was extraordinarily complex, we would go crazy. I think if everything we were doing was extraordinarily simple, we would also go crazy. So I think the, the key is um, sort of always having some, a range of, of complexity and, and kind of just, and also scale of projects. Um, Cause some projects we do are like, you know, two, two years or whatever, you know.
2: 400,000 square feet of signage. Yeah. And it's
1: kind of, <laughs> and it's great to have that going on, but then it's also nice to have something uh, that we're like, oh, okay, we can do this when, within like three months, start to finish and that'll be, it'll still be like a cool, satisfying thing. So I think, um, yeah, I think the key is just is, is yeah. uh, having a, deg- a degree of a variety of scales and complexity at all times. That's kind of the, the best way to do it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and I don't think like, yeah, and again, like, it's not inherent, at this point, I would say it's not inherently more satisfying to do a complex thing than a simple thing. I think maybe like 10 years ago, when when there was like, less crazily complex things under under our respective belts, it would maybe have seemed um, like maybe we would have had more of a fetish for the complex at that point in time when it was like less familiar.
0: Right. That's <laughs> but, interesting.
1: Um, but There's uh,
2: still a satisfaction at a certain scale that is kind yeah, of...
1: Yeah, not to downplay that, <laughs> that Right, right, of course. But I think like when you're younger, the, I don't know, there was a kind of more... I don't know, there's more of a clear priority of, like, this is what we're striving for, and this stuff, it's a little simplistic, I don't know about that stuff. But then you kind of come to appreciate the simple things a little bit more. Um, um, Well, because you can start to see them for what they are, basically, rather than the simple things coming in and you sort of feeling this, like, lack with them that, oh, I wish it was this, like, massive, you know, undertaking involving research and editing and writing and designing. Yeah. yeah, when you've done that a few times, you know it's, it's it's great to work that way. But it's just not everything can be of that of that scale, um, at least for our kind of operation.
0: Yeah, I think yeah, I think you're exactly right. I feel like I've just started doing those kind of more complex things, and I you know I'm basically working by myself most of the time. And I couldn't tell if I was desiring the simple things just because it was like overwhelming because I was suddenly doing these for the first time, or if it was. Maybe these complex things weren't as exciting as I thought they <laughs> I thought they were. And so I feel like you've put some things into perspective just for me personally outside of this conversation that has been helpful. Um, I have two more questions to, uh, to, to wrap up. I'm kind of curious, what, what kind of things are, are both of you thinking about right now? Or what are the, the research topics or the things that you're kind of excited by and interested in right now? Or, or you know, what's, what's next?
2: Well, I can say I've been thinking a lot about wayfinding and signage, partly because of this 400,000 square foot project
3: we're working on.
2: But I've been thinking a lot about systems and um, also just this interaction between people and architecture as part of that project and trying to actually go through a history of graph design and how it relates to signage and how that relates to history of architecture. And... um, trying to understand the landscape of Los Angeles through that lens as well, because it's a landscape that's so um, conducive to signage because of the speed that people travel here. Um, Everything changes in scale based on the speed of movement. Um, So that's what I've been at least thinking about and trying to figure out what form that thinking will take next. That's interesting.
1: Well, yeah, and it's true. Yeah, and for both of us, I mean, Los Angeles as a, as a topic is definitely in the forefront of our minds being yeah. just being, you know, relative newcomers and, um, you know, being aware of that and just wanting to build up a kind of deep understanding of of place in a way that, you know, after, you know, I mean, I ended up living in New York for about 17 years and had a pretty good grasp of it at that point. So it's it's a. Uh, it's definitely new. It's, 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 it's great to be in a new place and invigorating and energizing, mm-hmm. energizing to be in a new place. Um, but yeah, you want, you sort of want to be a good, a good citizen and <laughs> understand, uh, what you're kind of, you know, what was here before you and, and how you can kind of slot into it in a, as, as a good member of a, of a community. Um, so yeah, a lot of our reading lately has been, um, Trying to like go deep into the, the literature of, of, of Los Angeles. Um, I love that. Um, yeah, so that that yeah that has been fascinating. And uh, you know whether it's like there's like the Good Rainer Bannum book about. Yeah, that's uh, about what Angeles. I was
0: exactly thinking of as you were saying oh. this. There's this, this
1: book by Carrie McWilliams I've been reading called yeah. um, S- Southern California: An Island on the Land, which is just mm. beautiful writing and like fascinating history. Um, uh, but and well, and I started reading. Um, Raymond Chandler uh, detective novels, which um, oh, nice. are also great writing and uh, and you know provide some insight into like different parts of the of the city and how uh, how they operated uh, some decades ago. So yeah, it, yeah, L. A. has been has been on our minds. Yeah. Um, and I think like in terms of just like new stuff that we have coming up for publishing oh. projects is definitely like we're we're still. I mean, obviously these are deeply fraught times politically and we're trying to have our publishing output i mean as always but but you know we're definitely uh, wanting the output to have a political bearing mm-hmm. as well um so we have a couple a couple things in, in the works that that uh connect to that i mean a more contemporary project is well actually that, that museum of capitalism book oh, that yeah we, that we published uh last last, last, year? Year. last year um so that actually, exceeded everyone's expectations in terms of interest and it looks like it's about to go out of print so we're starting to work on a expanded second edition with um with some new contributors and just trying to build that out for some future iterations of of the show um so that yeah we're excited about that there's a there's a book um i think it's slated for fall next year by um there's a graphic designer and educator, educator named Danielle Aubert, who uh, she's based in Detroit. Uh, she teaches at, I believe, Wayne State University there. Um, and she she did an exhibition maybe two years ago about, um, there was a, a sort of editor and printer named Freddie Perlman who um, was working in Detroit and I think also Chicago, also Chicago. Um, in the 60s and the 70s and I guess through the 80s and, and did these... Uh, he, he was actually the first to publish uh, an English edition of *Society of the Spectacle* oh, and uh, inserted illustrations that were sort of um, they were not part of the, the original Guy Debord text, but kind of had his own put mm-hmm. his own little twist on on the, the book uh, in making the translation, which I think maybe Debord was not psyched about. <laughs> uh, but it's it's a really remarkable document, of course, and uh, and just some of his printing experiments. He's sort of almost like this uh, like lefty DIY version of Bradbury Thompson. And mm. in terms of like, just play with, um, you know, CMYK and like different alignments of, of plates and things like that. So it's actually, so from a graphic perspective, some of the work is really interesting also. So so Danielle oh, did an exhibition about him a couple of years ago and we're, uh, yeah, and we're working with her on, um, on a book version of that uh, exhibition, um, or, or there'll be a lot more uh, Material in the exhibition actually for the book, uh, so she's she's writing that now. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that's one of the the upcoming things that we're excited about. So there's there's a few things where graphic design is is the subject matter a little bit more directly, but a kind of yeah critical you know, or political um, take on
0: what graphic design practice can be. Yeah, I think that's great, and I think you're right. Like that feel again, it comes back to what you were talking about earlier. Of it, I feel like that. Both of those really kind of fill a void where there's definitely kind of something missing. And you started answering my last question a little bit, but I was, I'm was i curious, and this is a question that I always end the podcast with, of just, you know, what are some of the books or the authors or writers who have just kind of really influenced and shaped basically how you think about all of this stuff that we've been talking about? Are there, are there people that you find yourself kind of returning to again and again or books you find yourself uh, keep going back to? You want to
2: go first? This is only standing out because I'm looking at it on the shelf, but we've been thinking about Bruno Minari a lot lately. This is also a topic that David Reinberg covers quite extensively um, in his uh, classes, but I think there's a kind of um, playfulness, a little bit of absurdity, but just a very particular sensibility to his work that we've always admired, and we do try to bring a little bit of that um, lightness and sort of accessibility to everything that we do. Um, so I, I would say he's a tenant for me.
1: Definitely, yeah. Um, it, well, I guess in terms of like long-standing influence, I sort of, maybe I first think of um, Lester Bangs and... <laughs> nice, <and> yeah. And <laughs> real Marcus, because I mean like, I mean, I, I guess I got into Lester Bangs before Griel Marcus, but Lester Bangs was like, I mean, he writes about aesthetics at a really really high level of thinking, but with a real gut level impact uh, in terms of analysis and impact. And and there was always this rich, as he sort of, I mean, he didn't live that long, but in his later writing, there's this really rich, like, thread of just, like, thinking through ethic, what ethics can mean within, like, you know, a kind of unruly... Rock scene, that, that punk rock scene, or whatever, um, and yeah, that writing was cool. deeply influential to me uh, as a definitely as a young person, and it's definitely stuck with me since. Um, and then, and yeah, from there, yeah, Grill Marcus is uh, his like, especially lipstick traces is such a like insanely brilliant yeah. way of kind of synthesizing all of these. You know, kind of, You know, all these threads of sort of non-normative activity over, you right. know, spanning decades and um, and countries, continents, um, and like saying that, like, you know, what's hap- what the surrealists are doing relates to what was, you know, what, this band Lilliput is doing in Switzerland in 1979, and, and actually that's a pretty direct language. That was a bad example, but but but, uh, <laughs> but but you know, again, like this idea of um, of this like. of of, uh you know underground or whatever alternative ways of thinking um how you can trace that as a thread through all of these uh diverse situations basically um and that yeah that's still being super important to me that 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 way of thinking because it does kind of tie together you know if you're sort of organically like interested in music design architecture art all these things um I don't know. Grow market sort of helps to provide like a conceptual underpinning for how those things relate to each other and connect, um, and connect in spirit, if not, um, if not in terms of like direct connection or direct step by step lineage. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. And I don't know,
1: Rainer Bannum. I like Rainer Bannum yeah. a lot.
0: <laughs> yeah. He, you know, he's he's I, I you know this was a great mix because Bannum comes up on the podcast all the time with this question, and you would think. Minari would, but he does not come up as often as I think he deserves to. So I love that we hit both, both, uh, both of them.
1: <laughs> oh, and Robin Kinross. Uh, his, oh yeah. I, I kind of think every. I hope that every young designers reads unjustified texts. I mean, because it's a compilation of um, of essays from different places. It's a. It's. It's not the easiest thing to read, sort of cover to cover, but there's numerous essays in there that that really deeply shaped my thinking about
0: typography. Yeah. There are there are a lot of people who I'm mad that I like didn't learn about their work earlier and Ken Ross is one of those people that I just feel like I'm always kind of finding new things uh, uh, that, that that he's written and I'm just like why did no one tell me about this 15 years ago? Like why did why was it I was af- out of school for a couple years before that name ever you know, came across my screen or my desk or whatever.
2: Yeah, okay. everything by Hyphen Press is also
0: oh yeah so
2: influential. I mean, for us, I think it's part of the reason that we we do publish is this idea of sort of. Right. I, I, I really do hope that people do still read those books. I think it's still
0: in print. I think, it's still I think it is. Yeah, I think it is. This was this was such a fun conversation for me. Like I said at the beginning, I, I feel like I've been kind of influenced by by both of your work for you know essentially. Uh, you know majority of my working career and have kind of uh just love the way you think about these things and the way you approach your work and have been wanting to have you on the podcast for a while so thanks for being on the show yeah
1: thank you so much it's totally a pleasure for, for us as well it was great thanks so much
0: this episode was recorded on october 4th 2018 our theme music is by andy borgasani we're on twitter and instagram at surface podcast you can find us wherever you gets your podcasts and at scratching the surface.FA.